0: Jesus baptizes, yes, into salvation and unto conversion with the Spirit of God, every believer. But there is also another part of his baptism, which really in one sense is partnered to it. Those that trust in him, those that repent and believe are baptized with the Spirit of God. But there is coming a time then when those who do not will receive another kind of baptism. He's speaking to two different groups here. They're, They're both there. He's speaking to believers and unbelievers.
1: Hello and welcome again to Grace Merrillville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 3, and if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. We've been here for a while, and hopefully these verses are becoming familiar to you, familiar friends, and I pray that all of Scripture will be that for you, that as you read it, it becomes more and more familiar, not only in the words that you are reading, but in the way that it impacts your heart, the fact that it is changing you, that we read Scripture and understand Scripture, that we might look more like Jesus And that's the precious privilege that we have, to have His very words and to have His very mind, that we might read it and become more like Him. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. Now think for a moment if you have heard these of these or read these best selling books or seen these best selling movies. Hell is for real. The astounding story of a trip to hell and back. All dogs go to hell. To Hell and Back, A Doctor's Extraordinary Account of Her Death, Hell, Demons, and Death Again, A True Story. My Journey to Hell, What I Saw and How It Changed My Death. The Hell Answer Book, Waking Up in Hell, A True Story of Brokenness, Hell and Death Again. How about this one? Hell is Beyond Your Wildest Expectations, Ten True Stories of Experiencing Hell. No, you probably haven't heard any of those. But if you change the word hell to heaven, demons to angels, and death to life, all the above titles are in fact best-selling books or movies. We are anxious to dwell on the joys of heaven, but we are a bit hesitant to mull over the nature of hell. It would probably be helpful for us, in fact it would scripturally be helpful for us to do a little bit more thinking about both and much of our text over these past weeks has been dwelling essentially on the natures, the realities of hell. That is eternal judgment. That's why we repent. That's why the necessity of turning to God, because there is a punishment coming. We are to flee from the wrath to come. What did he say to the scribes and Pharisees? Who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He didn't say that there wasn't a wrath coming. He says, why are you fleeing? Because you don't think you're going to be part of it. And this is so often what we refuse to tell a world that is, in fact, already judged and on its way to eternal hell. There is no question it will not be some kind of, you know, final assessment at the end. If you did enough good works, if you, if you said enough things, if you did, if you went to church enough, if you read your Bible enough, there will be no assessment at the end. Either you trusted Christ and put your faith and trust in Him alone, you turned to the King, you experienced a relationship with the King, you had a heart conversion that involved repentance, that is hating your sin, recognizing its penalty, turning from your sin, confessing your sin. Either you did that or you didn't, and it's the only means by which you will ever enter in. There is a wrath coming. And so it would be good for us us as the text, as the Bible does for us, is to point us, yes, to the joys of heaven and the truths and realities of it, but also to the reality of eternal hell. And in fact, if there is a theme in the Bible or or even the words that Jesus spoke or the ways those two are presented to us, heaven or hell, Jesus certainly said more about hell than he said about heaven. We'll find that out as we move through the book of Matthew. But he was not afraid to dwell on it. And yes, I understand that there, this has been somewhat tainted by what we might call hell, fire, and brimstone preachers who seem to never be able to move past hell and into the glories of what Jesus has done and into his eternal purpose. I I understand that. And yet, unfortunately, what we have done is we have sought to minimize that portion because, well, that's not very palatable to people. And maybe you, you will scare them. Well, this morning, what we will discover is that we need to be afraid. Hell is not a pretty place. And the, the content or what goes on in an eternal hell is something that we should all flee from. How much do you think about and experience the joy of knowing Christ, living for Christ and being indwelt by Christ through his spirit? How often do you contemplate what it would be like to spend eternity in the presence of the creator of the universe? Those are wonderful thoughts, and we don't think about that enough. However, on the opposite side, have you ever thought about what it would be like to be completely separated from Christ for all of eternity? Have you sought to wrap your mind around what it might be like to experience excruciating, unremitting pain for an infinite period of time? It's time to start contemplating these things. If you haven't, well, there are only two options that exist for every person. And so, if you are one who has trusted in Christ and you can contemplate the joys of heaven, then you also ought, you ought also to consider the nature of hell, because everyone you know that hasn't put faith and trust in Christ will go there. And billions around the world, unless they hear of Christ and turn to Christ, will also go there. And so thinking of both of these things is important for us, and our text this morning brings us to this place once again. We're going to be focusing on verses 11 and 12. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This morning we will see that without true repentance, every person will spend all of eternity in active torment, forever cut off from the presence and glory of the God they were created to worship. Again, without true repentance every person will spend all of eternity in active torment, forever cut off from the presence and glory of the God that they were created to worship. Let's review where we are in the text. We came to Matthew chapter 3, and we found that this was the, the proclamation of the herald, John the Baptist, who comes to, to introduce, to prepare the way for the King of kings and Lord of lords. His entrance onto this earth. His entrance into his ministry, John comes to prepare the way. And his message is repent. Turn from your sin. Recognize it's evil. Understand what that sin causes. Know that it grieves the heart of a holy God, desire to turn from it, confessing it. And then he said, you do this for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a kingdom coming. The king is here. He's going to proclaim his kingdom. And there's only one way into it. It's through through the door of repentance through the recognition of sin, understanding that you are not automatically in the kingdom, but in fact, you are automatically out of the kingdom. Whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, it doesn't matter. You don't come into this world ready for the kingdom. You come into this world rejected from the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the king. You must enter into a relationship with him, and he has a standard. His standard is absolutely perfect righteousness, because he's the king. He can have no less. He's a real king. He's not a king who, who reduces his standard. He's not a king who pretends that, that he is just when he isn't. He's not a king who makes up his own rules in one sense. He's a king who is holy, righteous, and just as well as gracious, loving, and gentle. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We looked at the person of John the Baptist. He he was predicted by Isaiah. He looks a lot, as nearly as we can tell, like Elijah. And he comes with the camel's hair and the leather belt, and he's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's out in the wilderness. And it, nothing about him is, is would draw necessarily the popularity of people. Nothing about his message would do that. And yet the Spirit of God is working. And so people are coming. The Lord is, Lord is gracious to them, and they're recognizing that they need to repent, and they're being baptized in the Jordan. That's his work. He's John the Baptist. That's what he does. He baptizes people in water. He preaches repentance, and then he baptizes them with his baptism, which is, remember, it was taken most likely from Jewish proselyte baptism, but it's a new thing. It isn't that. It isn't baptizing people into Judaism. It's baptizing them out of it. It's taking them out of any other false religion and any other state that they are in. It's saying, look, you're repenting, and so the goal is to come into the kingdom. But we remember that his baptism was limited. His baptism was introductory because it was a need not only to repent of sin, but to turn to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, says John later on. So this baptism is in the Jordan. It's immersion as nearly as we can tell, and it's for repentance. And then as they are coming for baptism, we begin to look at his rebuke. There are some who come, he says, why are you coming to be baptized? They're standing on the banks, this Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're coming for the wrong reasons, he tells them. You're coming and you're not truly repenting. He says, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Show me the fruit of real repentance. One of which would be confession, which they apparently are not doing at all. That we actually confess our sins. We agree with God that our sins are as evil as he says they are and that they are as as rampant within our evil hearts as he says they are. He says, you're not truly repentant. You're trusting in your own righteousness. And so you can't come. You can't be baptized. You can't be repenting when you're not repentant. And then he says, you're wrongly trusting in your Jewish heritage. He rebukes them for the fact that they are essentially saying, look, we're Jews. We're in the kingdom. Everyone else is out of the kingdom. They got to come into our kingdom. And Jesus is coming and saying, you're not in my kingdom. You have to come into mine, not your own. You can't invent your own kingdom. Through your own self-righteousness, through your ethnic heritage, through whatever else it might be, through being born in America, going to church, reading your Bible, born in a Christian home, you don't get your own kingdom. You come into mine. Even those who were his ethnic people, which was absolutely shattering to them. They should have known it. They should have seen it. But they didn't understand it from the Old Testament. And they thought they were already in. And so they didn't come for repentance. At least certainly the leaders felt that way. And then we began to look at, oh, lastly, he says, you will not be spared on the day of judgment. That's his other rebuke to them. And that's what we've been discussing now, the judgment of John the Baptist, or the herald proclaims this judgment. And remember that he said, I'm just preparing men. That's verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. I'm just preparing you. You have to repent, but there's a need. You need something else. You need the Spirit of God, which comes from believing in the King, trusting the King. So my baptism is preparatory. My baptism is incomplete. And we will see as we move through Matthew and, and then as as we study other books that the baptism of John turns into the baptism of Jesus. Not only the Holy Spirit, as we will see, but also the water baptism in his name, no longer baptizing only or merely for repentance, but being baptized by John turns into being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then it's just an outward picture of what the, the, the greater King, the great king, who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, who plunges men into the body of Christ and into Christ himself through the Spirit of God. It's a, an outward representation of that entire process then. Not sim not only repentance, the turning from, but repentance, the turning from and turning to, the conversion that repentance is. And then John says, Jesus is the judge. The one who is coming is mightier than I. In other passages, he says, I must decrease. He must increase. Why? Because he's infinite holy God. He is the eternally pre-existent one. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence with a word. He comes before me. Not simply he was born before me, but he is before me. He was before me eternally. And later on, later in other places, he says, he is the son of God. He is fully and totally God, the creator of the universe, the one who has existed from all of eternity. And I, and that puts me then in a position where I am not even, I am not even worthy to touch his foot, to begin to do the most lowly of service, that is to take off his sandals and wash his feet. I'm not worthy to even start that process. And John being the greatest of men born of woman, women, is he better than we? No. And yet so often we think somehow we are superior, somehow we are, should have entrance into the kingdom. We should receive the blessings and benefits. Somehow we deserve it. And we know better that we live our lives, even as believers, somehow thinking that we should receive more. And yet, John the Baptist, the very herald of the king, comes saying, I may not even touch his sandal. I can't even, I can't even unlatch his sandal. That's how unworthy I am in his sight. And yet, and yet he didn't wallow in this as some kind of, you know, he didn't turn it inward on himself and, you I can't believe it, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I I, you know, I, I can't even touch his sin, what am I going to do? He rejoiced in that. Why? Because it demonstrated the mightiness of the king, the king who would save him. There's no benefit in wallowing in your sin. There's no benefit in, in a false humility who says, woe is me, I'm not worthy. You may not go from, I am worthy and I am righteous to, I'm nothing and I can't do anything in life as, You rejoice in the greatness of the king as it demonstrates your humility because when you turn to him, it shows how great he is that he would take you. And yet, he takes you. He is your king. And John says, Jesus is superior to me, but also his baptism is superior to mine. And that's where we left off last week, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at, at passages in the New Testament which speak of the progression, really, of how this happened. It hadn't happened at this time. Men were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit in this way, the full indwelling of the Spirit of God. Certainly He worked in the Old Testament. Certainly He brought people to life. And yet He did not indwell them in this special, new, and complete way. This is a New Testament work. He says it's coming. It isn't here. You haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then we see that, we see it happen at Pentecost to the apostles. And then beginning with the Jews there, we see it then move to the Samaritans, then move to the Gentiles, and lastly, he kind of rounds it up with a whole group of disciples of John, kind of Old Testament saints, who hadn't been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that a progression, which leads us now to today, without apostles around, with the foundation of the church already being built, that everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ, who repents and believes, receives the full indwelling of the Spirit at that moment, right? All, all, all bound up together, the Spirit coming, renewing the heart, repenting and believing— he indwells permanently, bringing with him all of his strength and all of his power at that moment. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if we're just going to summarize that entire, entire doctrine, it's the act by which at the moment of conversion, every believer is indwelt fully by the Spirit of God and thus united with Christ and with his body, the church. That's a superior baptism. External baptism with water, even, re, even the representation of repentance, is nothing like the ent- internal cleansing, complete conversion of the soul that the Holy Spirit accomplishes. And not only that, but the conversion of the soul and then in which He then indwells. Not part of Him, not some of Him, not, not a little bit of Him, but all of Him. Titus 3 is clear. Whom, the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly. Every bit of the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. I'm not saying... At the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you live in the fullness of the power of the Spirit of God. We are commanded over and over in Scripture to be filled with that which is within us, not filled externally from something that comes without, filled from what is within. And so there are certain things that we do to take hold of the power of the Spirit of God, but every believer at the moment of conversion has the fullness of the Spirit. Whether they live it out is then a partnership work of sanctification, accomplished over time as they are filled with the Spirit on a regular basis. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But now we come to the baptism of fire because he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is that? There's several thoughts on what fire might be and there is much discussion. On what it might be, what this actually means, if Jesus, if this superior baptism, Jesus does both of these things, let me give you a couple of thoughts on on what it could be. It could be perhaps trial and difficulty. So he's saying, look, you will, you, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and then there's going to be all these difficulties and trials and struggles, but he'll bring you through them. The Spirit of God will help you, and he'll you'll make it through to the end. He'll purify you through trials. It, it could be that because it is true that God does that, but I don't think that's what fire is referring to here. Sometimes the fire is a fire of trial. It could also be the tongues of fire displayed at Pentecost, or tongues as of fire doesn't say they were actually fire. It could be that. And, and he, he points to clearly, he's pointing to the baptism of the Holy Spirit initiated at the at the time of Pentecost, so perhaps it could be that. But I don't think that explains it fully. There might be, there may be the symbolism of the, of the Holy Spirit coming with the tongues of fire it may in fact be part of the symbolism involving judgment, as we will see, and how believers relate to that. But even Jesus himself, when he references the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts, he doesn't mention fire at that point. He just simply says the Holy Spirit is coming. Well, then it could also be, perhaps, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it means he will come inside and it will be the, that fire, that burning of conviction, which will draw people to Christ. It could be, but I don't think that's what it is. I think the context reveals to us and and makes it very clear that when he says the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, fire is speaking of judgment. Jesus baptizes, yes, into salvation and unto conversion with the Spirit of God, every believer. But there is also another part of his baptism, which really in one sense is partner to it. Those that trust in Him, those that repent and believe, are baptized with the Spirit of God. But there is coming a time then when those who do not will receive another kind of baptism. He's speaking to two different groups here. They're they're both there. He's speaking to believers and unbelievers. The believers receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The unbelievers receive the baptism of fire. And so that's something we need to dwell on this morning. There is joy. And we'll talk much more about that baptism of the Holy Spirit, how that relates to us, how we take a hold of that, the, the beauties and blessings of that. But we may not pass by then the baptism by fire. Now, why would I say that fire would refer to eternal judgment? Well, it's already clearly in our text. Look at verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the Fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And really, that's the next word after he says baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Here's the fire. This is what it means for Jesus to baptize in fire. That is, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. So there will be... There is... In fact, an essence of this, in which the baptism by fire does include believers, and in that they are they will be there when that is happening, but something different happens to them in that baptism. That he will gather his wheat into the barn, he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. This the, the thing that most clearly fits the context here is the second coming of Christ, in which he comes not with reference to dealing with sin or or making the payment for sin, but where he comes to Call people to final accounting for refusing to trust in Him, and therefore he, he brings them to account for their sins. And this will be a fiery baptism, a baptism of judgment. The fire part of the judgment refers to the final judgment in which Christ Himself brings final punishment on the wicked and final vindication to the righteous. Both believers and unbelievers will, will be baptized, as it were, immersed into, engulfed, in the fire of final judgment, one to eternal destruction and one to eternal life. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think we get a, a good picture of what this judgment looks like and really how it relates when this baptism by fire, essentially being immersed into judgment, immersed into final judgment, just as we are fully immersed into the Spirit of God and, and by the Spirit of God, right where we receive His fullness, so those who are baptized into fire will receive the fullness of that judgment, total immersion as it were, not half, not part, not a little, all. Full judgment upon those who do not trust Christ. And yet again, when that happens to unbelievers, there is something that will happen to believers. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse six. Perhaps one of the most, it depends on which side of this you are, one of the most chilling or one of the most joyful passages in all of the New Testament. For after all, it is only just. You might underline those words. It is only just. Is God gracious and loving and kind and gentle? He is. Is he also just? He is. And you may not have a God who is gracious and loving and gentle who is not also just. For without justice, those qualities mean nothing. They are foolishness. They are false sentiment. For after all, it is only just. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When was the last time you heard any preaching on that passage? It is right and good for God to bring the fires of judgment upon those who harm, who afflict, who hurt his people. Because Christ indwells them. And when they hurt those people, they hurt the Lord Jesus himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. You may not touch the apple of God's eye. You may not harm His people. And if you do, it is the primary indication on an earthly plane that you do not love God, that you are against God, and rebellion towards God, a hatred of His people and a harming of His people is a harming of Christ. It is dishonor to God. This is the message to the world. Verse 7, and to give relief, here's the flip side, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Paul making a separation. They were under direct persecution. He had been, certainly. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Always judgment is referred to this way. Always the picture of fire, that which burns, that which consumes, that which utterly destroys. Now, we have a hard time getting a hold of that in our day and age. Because fire so often doesn't do that, we have so many protections, and all the homes we that are built in the United States—that is—have all these fire protections. And even when something burns, it only—it usually only burns partially, and and they get, and you know fire firemen come and they they take care of it. It doesn't always happen that way. Two firemen, I believe, just died this week in a nine alarm—or yeah, can you have nine alarms? Five alarm fire, I guess, is the highest that you can get. They, they were consumed by the blaze. It was so hot. Dwayne Blankenship lives in some apartments that right next to him, the vast majority of that apartment building burned down two weeks ago. doesn't happen to us very often, but back then in this culture, when things burned, they burned completely. There was was no fire brigade. There were were no fire trucks that came, and so whole cities would be wiped out. And, of course, that's been true all the way up until about this century, right? The great fires of London, and, and really fires destroyed most every city at least once. The great fire of Rome, which was to come. All of those things, things would burn, and fire was horribly feared because you couldn't put it out, and it would destroy everything, and it would take everyone in its path. It's very visceral to the people of the day, less so to us. It doesn't mean that fire isn't still like that. It just means it's harder for us to get a hold of what this actually means because we don't see fire like this very often. We haven't experienced it. Most of them probably would have. So he will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. It's not a word you hear taught on very often in scripture either. Retribution. That is someone receiving the just due for what they have done in response to what they did. Oh, no, it's okay that they did that. That's really fine. We're not going to judge anyone for what they've actually done. That would be unfair. That, that wouldn't be nice. That wouldn't be right in our way of thinking. Remember the guy I talked to several weeks ago? And I said, if you're in the courtroom and, and there's a murderer and the murderer, you know, says, oh, judge, I'm sorry. And should the judge let him off? And his first words were, well, God is a different. Different way of judging. Really. He doesn't give retribution. He isn't just. He doesn't bring a just penalty for a crime committed. He does. The scripture is clear. You will not escape if you are under his judgment. You cannot. You have no chance. The mighty flaming fire, the angels who come and bring it along with Jesus will deal out retribution. That is, again, rightful. It is a rightful response to a a sin committed, to a crime committed. Retribution. Well, who are these people that are going to be retributed against? Clearly they've already they're those who have punished or, or harmed, afflicted God's people. But what's the what's the core issue? If you afflict the people of God, what what's underneath that? Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, they have no relationship with Him, know as in a true intimate relationship, not know as in have understanding of the vast majority of of unbelievers have an understanding of God. In fact, the Bible says that all men know God. Romans 1 is clear. There's no one from whom the sun is hidden. Even if you are blind, you feel the heat of the sun. And as the sun goes from, as it rises and sets and moves across the universe, it proclaims the glory of God. And no one is hidden from its heat, says Psalm nine nineteen.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.